Thank you for your worship. If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, where we continue where we left off last week. We ended with the church having received the Spirit of God at Pentecost, the appointment of deacons to serve, the ultimate death of Stephen, and then we pick up immediately after the first Christian martyr uh, experienced death at the hands of Saul, who we will later see uh, in the book of Acts as well. And here we begin to encounter some peculiar individuals within the gospel. Um, And I want to read for us, just beginning in verse 1, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless our time together. So if you would, if you found your place in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, text says this, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Let's pray. Father, uh, change us according to your word. Let us look more like Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I um, was born in 1982. Uh, I'm not considered a millennial. I'm not considered Gen Z. I'm, I'm just really considered confused. Uh, we, my age group, uh, those born in 82, were called Zennials. Um, I grew up watching basketball uh, in the 90s. And so when it comes to the question of who is the greatest of all time uh, for a Zennial born in 1982, there is only one appropriate answer, and there has only always been one appropriate answer and that is MJ, all right? Don't come at me with your Kobe stuff. Don't come at me with your LeBron stuff. It is Michael Jordan unequivocally. Recently, ESPN did a 30 for 30 documentary that got released on Netflix. My wife and I are almost through with it um, on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, particularly in the 90s, and really all the behind the scenes that, that went into play. Now, it's full of colorful language. Uh, there, are, there are just parts in it. I wouldn't recommend it to, to all people, but it is an interesting and fascinating look into the mindset of Michael Jordan. In particular, all of his ups and downs from losing his father to quitting for 18 months to coming back, uh, three championships in a row, followed by three more championships in a row. And just an incredible story. And, and the documentary is not so much about basketball, because basketball is not my most favorite sport, but it really is a documentary that's trying to answer the question, what is it that makes Michael Jordan Michael Jordan? Like he had an incredible ability and talent. Uh, He was extremely gifted, but there's been a lot of extremely gifted and very talented individuals that were just as talented and just uh, as strong as he was, but didn't accomplish the same things. Why did he do that? And why was he able to versus others? And it's really this documentary about the determination and the grit of Michael Jordan. And what you see as the documentary goes on is that you see over and over again, you hear him say over and over again, he just simply had this drive to be the best. He wanted to win world championships and he wanted to be the most valuable player every time that he played. He was a highly motivated individual that understood his mission. Now, Michael Jordan had a mission to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And it's one thing to focus our energy and our determination and our, 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 our focus on just simply being a, a world-famous basketball player. But here's the reality of Acts 8 for us this morning. One of the reasons why I chose to go through Acts this summer was because of Acts chapter 8 in mind. 
Because what it does is it clarifies the model in which churches are to walk and it gives us a, a, a redefining what our mission is, what it should be, and what our purposes are. And it should, in, in one way, should allow us to develop the same grit, <coughs> the same determination that Jordan had on the court is the same grit and determination that the church must have today. To be single-minded in our commitment to be focused in our cause and our mission and to understand, hear me this church, that God is sending his people into our city to do great things. God is sending us, ordinary folks, just ordinary plain old people and he is calling us to do some extraordinary things. And so I want you to look with me at the text this morning, and I want to begin, as we begin to look and walk through most of chapter 8, I want you to see some things in the very beginning. If we look back at the end of verse 1, he says, Saul approved of this execution, there arose this persecution in Jerusalem, and then the church begins to scatter. And I want you to notice the two places that they begin to scatter. In particular, I want you to notice the place of Samaria at the end of verse 1. Now, if we don't know our biblical history and if we don't understand biblical theology, we might miss this notion of what is happening as Philip, whom we'll see in a moment, travels specifically to the region of Samaria and why that is so noteworthy and why it applies to us today in 2020. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised them. They loathed them. There was a thousand-year history that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. They absolutely despised one another. And all of it began about a thousand years ago from the time that, that Luke sort of characterizes what's going on, where God's people weren't walking in faithfulness. And so God judged his people in the Old Testament in a variety of ways. But one of the ways that God would bring judgment upon his people, he would bring pestilence and plague, but he would also bring judgment in the form of foreign invaders. And so what happened is that God brought the Assyrians into the northern kingdom. There was a civil war. There was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And God allows the Assyrians to come in in the northern kingdom, which is where Samaria was. And they are attacked and they are taken captive all the way back to Assyria. And this was a form of, of judgment on God's people. And so what happened, the Assyrians began to marry these Samaritans, these Jews that were in the northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians were smart and they said, listen, if we're going to occupy the land, we have to populate the land. And so they intermarried the Assyrians um, with the Samaritans. And so they, they came up with what was known to the pure Jew as, as a half-breed. And so a Samaritan was the result of Assyrians intermarrying with God's people in the northern kingdom. And so the Samaritans were looked down upon because of, get this, because of their race, because of the color of their skin, they were demeaned, they, they were less than human. In fact, there was a prayer that those that resided in the southern kingdom, that when they would pray, they would end the prayer and they would say, Lord, and at the resurrection, do not remember the Samaritans. They hated these people. These were, were impure individuals. I mean, the, the Jews of the southern kingdom were, were so focused on, on their purity that they wouldn't even intermix like their clothing. And so you, you did not touch, go near, you didn't talk, you didn't serve. These were less than human beings. 
They were demeaned in every which way that was possible. They were loathed and despised by God's people. So much so that if you lived on the, in the northern territory of the northern kingdom and you were making a pilgrimage all the way down to Jerusalem, but you had to go through Samaria, if you were caught going through Samaria and the Samaritans knew that you weren't a Samaritan, they would attack you, they would rob you, they would beat you, and in some instances, some Jewish historians tell us they would actually murder you as you traveled through there. And so the Jews did everything that they possibly could to stay away and, and, and to, to go around Samaria at all given costs. The Samaritans were so vindictive towards the Jewish people in the southern kingdom that as Passover approached, one historian says that as they were in the, in the Holy of Holies in the temples, a group of Samaritans took a bunch of pigs, and as they were preparing for worship, the pigs, undefiled, unclean meat, they set loose a group of pigs into the Jewish temple to defile the temple to rub their thumb in the faces of their adversaries. These people hated each other. And this wasn't just a, a 30 or 40 year period. This wasn't just since the Jim Crow era of, of segregation. It wasn't a period of, of two to 300 years uh, since the founding of our country. This went on for a thousand some odd years. They despised each other. And I want you to notice that as the church begins to experience persecution, it says the church scatters throughout the region and they scatter into Judea and Samaria. They go right to the place that nobody wanted to be. They go right to the people that, that no one wanted to be near. But I also want you to notice something else. Notice at the end of verse 1, that little phrase, except the apostles. So you've got this moment where Stephen is put to death, the church scatters, and the apostles, they stay in Jerusalem. So they stay centrally located right there, and then what happens is the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, the, the members who, who are hearing the apostles' instructions, they are the individuals that go and scatter out to the uttermost parts of the world. And why that's important that I think Luke puts that notion in there is because I think he's doing that to disorient us away from the idea that if we can just, as a church, get a young preacher up here to proclaim the word of God, that our church is going to automatically grow again. That if we can just get the right staff in the right place, that things are going to take care of themselves and we will grow again. We will begin to meet people where they are. And I think Acts 8 just steps right on top of that view and it just breaks it in half and says that is not true. It is true in one sense that, that we better and should have faithful teaching from the pulpit. We need pastors and elders and student ministers and children's ministers and, and college ministers to faithfully proclaim teachers to do those things. We're not demeaning those things or diminishing those things. But as we begin to fundamentally understand that God is sending people out on mission, we have to understand that the primary groups of people that God is sending is not so much the pastor and the elders, but rather the people. He's sending the people on mission. This is the first time after Pentecost that the gospel goes out. And I want you to notice that it's the apostles that stay put in Jerusalem 
And it is everyone else that then goes and leaves to go proclaim and to preach. They're the ones that go and, and get after it. They're the ones that are the messengers. They are the ones that are the characters. And what I think this teaches us by way of application is this. The church grows not through the preaching of a few, but by the testimony of the many. You want to one day see this auditorium, once COVID has, has gone away, back to two to 3,000 people per service. It won't happen just by having good teaching in the pulpit or even good teaching in the Sunday school classes or good teaching in the home groups and the community groups. But that happens when God's people catch a vision for being on mission and understanding that God has sent them into their city and into their neighborhoods to go and to faithfully proclaim and to embody, to live out the gospel before a watching world that is looking at the church for something different. Fundamentally, this is one of the most basic premises now of Christianity is that we have to understand that where the culture has changed is that people, more often than not, are not just showing up to church randomly. They're coming by way of invitation. Over 80% come because someone invited them because they went after someone to bring them along, to bring them into their community group, to bring them into their small group, to hear the message of the gospel, but also to see people that are living alongside them for the sake of the gospel. But if we pick up in verse 4, I want you to notice, he says this, oh, those who, who were scattered, they went about proclaiming the word. And so the idea is this, that we see the church gathering together to hear the gospel and to hear the message of truth and that Jesus is still saving sinners. And they gather so that on Sunday, they can then go scatter on Monday. The purpose of, of Sunday is that we gather together as an assembled group to hear the word of God, to encourage one another, to sing to one another as we sing to the Lord. Both things happen at the same time so that it encourages our hearts and our minds and reminds us that we gather here on Sunday so we can scatter out on Mondays into the places God has called us to be. The God... God of the Bible doesn't call us to gather Monday and to gather Tuesday and to gather Wednesday. Rather, God calls us to gather on, on his day, Sunday, and then to scatter into the city on mission with purpose and with great intentionality for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of his name. But it picks up in verse 5 and it says this, but Philip, who was one of the deacons that was appointed that we read about last week, goes down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, and they saw the signs that he did. So I want to characterize Philip's ministry in, in two ways. Philip 1, according to that verse, was faithfully proclaiming a message of the gospel. He had the gospel right. He understood the doctrine of, of the word of God and that salvation comes um, by faith and it comes through the spirit of God changing our hearts. Philip understood that. He understood the word and so he proclaimed that right truth, right doctrine leads to right salvations. But as he is proclaiming this in word, he's also doing something that's really, really important. He is faithfully living out through, in this moment, these miraculous things in his deeds 
And so what we see in Philip's life that is informative for us in our evangelism is that as he was proclaiming the good news, he was also practicing by deed. So by word and deed, his evangelism went forth into Samaria, into the places that nobody else wanted to go. And he was proclaiming and he was living and he was embodying the very thing that Jesus taught. In other words, we could define evangelism according to these verses, meaning living with intention by word and by deed. Evangelism is a purposeful thing that the church must participate in. That we go out with intention, with the hope to share and to proclaim the message of the truth of salvation but also making sure that that our actions embody the the service, the empathy, the mercy, the things that that are characteristic of the gospel. And we proclaim those in word and deed. So our church does that in a couple of ways. Even in the midst of COVID, we continue to support. We we started out of this church, part of our rich heritage and and legacy uh, comes Mercy Clinic, where we are helping indeed and we support financially. Part of our rich heritage is the Fort Worth Pregnancy Center and the Metroplex Women's Clinic in Arlington, both that are meant to serve the the needs of of oftentimes underprivileged individuals to to hear the gospel, but also to meet the need. It's part of the reason why we say circles more than rows, and when you get in your circle, you go there with the purpose of serving the people in your circle, meeting the needs that, that exist, that come up as you're walking alongside people. That is word and that is deed. But I want you to notice how in verse 8, verse 7 says this, for these unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many. So he did these deeds. Many were paralyzed or lame were healed. But notice what happens in verse 8. He says this, so there was so much joy in that city. So I want you to, to get this. With a group of people and a history that was rooted in over a thousand years of animosity and hatred, of murder, of theft, of discriminatory acts of violence, uh, picking and singling one another out specifically because of who they are. You want to talk about systemic. This was systemic in every which way that it possibly could be. It doesn't get much worse than than what you see here in this moment. But notice, as the gospel goes forth, indeed, notice what happens. People become changed because of Philip's message. And it says that the city takes on this posture of joy. Here's the question that I was haunted with all week, for myself personally, for you individually, and for our church corporately, that if the gospel is breaking through barriers in people's lives, if the gospel is breaking through um, systems and structures and, and all of those buzzwords that we hear talked about, if the gospel is making a difference, then people ought to be characterized in our city, in our schools, on our campuses as people of Joy. There's no Debbie Downers in the kingdom of God. There's no church curmudgeons that exist. There's no individuals who have the spiritual gift of of criticism at that point because they're watching lives get changed and the excitement is pervading that. It's kind of like I'm going to pick on our children's minister this week. She doesn't know I'm going to say this. She just got real tense in her pew. I get an email Thursday or Friday. She says, hey team, I need you to I want you to know about this. We, 
we just had some kids, two kids, I believe, that, that, that prayed to receive Christ, and they know Jesus now. Like, rejoice with me, fam. Like, high five on the internet. Like, COVID's happening, the world's falling apart, cities are burning, looting is happening, but God is still saving people and drawing them unto himself. And so we rejoice in, in those things. The ministry continues. We continue to move forward. There is great joy because of that. But here's, here's the $100 question for us this morning and you individually. Is your life so pervaded with joy because the gospel has changed you that if you disappear tomorrow, would anybody notice? If our church shut down the doors next month, would our community know? How about this one? If you posted a for sale sign in your neighborhood, I'm fixing to get you between the eyes on this. If you posted a for sale sign in your neighborhood, do you know your neighbors so well and have sought to serve them with great intention and purpose that they would be sorrowful that you've left? because you have committed your life for them to know and to hear and to embody in deed and word the gospel, would they weep because you're leaving? Haley and I have lived in our house in Burleson now for three or four months. Through this COVID, we, uh, though you can't go on dates because we're quarantining and we're trying to be careful, we've, we've dated almost every night. And how we do that is we put on our walking shoes and our walking shorts and we go walking. And to get from one end of my street block all the way to the back, it's, it's a mile down there and it's a mile back. And we typically will try to walk two, two, two laps, four miles. Is that right? Yeah, four miles. And we've done that almost every night for the past three or four months, almost without exception. We've met out of the 20 houses or so that are on our block. I think we only haven't met maybe one neighbor that's in our neighborhood, maybe one or two. Because every time we're out and about and we're trying to be visible, and I'm dating my wife, her, her, her uh, love language is quality time. She's watching this right now. And like her love language is quality time. I'm spending time with my wife. But every chance that we get when we see neighbors out walking, when they're out playing with their kids or their grandkids, they're riding their motorcycles or in my neighborhood, we're still, still popping fireworks for 4th of July. Even, we're still America, okay? Like my neighbors, lo they love blowing things up. It's, I'm, I mean, they haven't got, I don't know how many fireworks they bought, but they are still busting fireworks at this moment. But our goal is that we, we want to have a relationship to some degree to whatever they're going to let us so that one day when 30 years from now when we sell the house and, and move on, we want them to be sorrowful and to weep because we have sought out to serve them and to know them and to meet them right where they're at. And, and, and to ask those questions and, and to be a part of, of who they are, our, our neighborhood. Listen, we're a county church. Most churches um, don't necessarily pull from the mile or two around them. Most churches will pull anywhere from 20 to 45 miles at a time of people that will drive in. That's true of our church. And so we can concentrate on, on winning this, this two-mile area around our church, which we should. But here's the reality. God has put you in your neighborhood, in Crowley. He's put you in your neighborhood in, in Alito. He's got some of you in, in Arlington, some of you are in, are in Weatherford, some are in Burleson, some are down in Joshua and in the Cleburne area where God doesn't even go that far down there, right? Some are Meadowbrook area. God has put you in your neighborhood, in the TCU area. Why? 
Because he sent you there, whether you realize you've been sent or not. Why? So that they may know him. And the shift in our church over the next 10 to 20 years, and you're going to get tired of me saying this over and over and over again. It's the reason why we're in the book of Acts, because I knew almost on a weekly basis I was going to get to say this over and over and over and over and over and over again until I hear it. That God is ascending God that is sending us out on mission to embody the gospel and in word and in deed. And when this happens, when we can say there was much joy in that city, we begin to understand that the gospel creates unity that overcomes hurt and mistrust. It's the very thing. And let me say this to you because I've, on the Twitter verse, you know, you, I told you all this, you get on Twitter each day and go, what are we mad about today? What, is, where, where's, what are we outraged about today, right? And there's a debate within Christians right now on, should I just preach the gospel or should I be an advocate of legislation that, that changes laws and, and just preach the gospel until it comes to the thing and the law that you want changed and, and those kinds of things. And here's what I want to say to our church very carefully and listen to me very carefully. Our answer in response to that is we want both. We want to faithfully proclaim the gospel. It is the main thing. But we also want legislation at times that, that protects and, and not, doesn't allow us to discriminate, doesn't allow us to keep folks down, that, that doesn't allow um, vicious acts of, of brutality. We are for laws. We, we want laws. We, we want legislation. At the same time, we recognize that we need to be a people that embodies the gospel. Why do we need both? Because we can forcefully desegregate schools in the Jim Crow era, we can forcibly change those laws and make those things illegal to guarantee fairness, but what we cannot do because of those laws, those laws do not inherently make people love and or embrace each other. It may force them to, and it may force them to civilly be able to interact and respond, but the law is not meant to change the heart of the man or the woman. Only the gospel of Jesus is able to do that. So we want laws? Yes, we do. But at the same time, we want to be passionate and recognizing that those laws will end up short every single time when we seek to change culture apart from the gospel because only the gospel is the thing that changes the hearts of man. And so the first thing for us is the gospel. And then, yes, we want reasonable legislation to come alongside. There is a time, like Philip demonstrates with the Samaritans, there is a time where they come to the place where they put away past grievances and they put away mistrust and suspicion because of the message that Philip embodied. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but our culture is full of suspicion and mistrust. All we do right now as a culture is ascribe motive to both political parties and individuals. Everything's political in this day and age. Everything has a motivation. Truthfully, it, it really does in, in most instances. But the power of the gospel is it begins to minimize, not to ignore the grievances, but it helps us move past the grievances, to walk forward as, as the Jews did alongside the Samaritans as Philip goes to them and proclaims that message. 
But it says in verse 9, very quickly, there was this man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. He must have been reading those Harry Potter books at the time. And it says he was amazing, the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Notice what his motivation was. He was the one that was great. I'm going to perform these things to draw attention to myself. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with magic. He was casting spells. He, was, um, he probably was an individual where scholars can only speculate He was a man that probably um, understood human psychology at a very high level. He had a a very high emotional intelligence. He understood how people worked. He probably had a background in in astrology and mathematics, uh, a little bit of form of of manipulation, sleight of hand. Uh, He he had been practicing his best uh, Michael Scott uh, magician tricks, pulling uh, rabbits out of hats and and creating fire with his hands and, and those types of things. He understood people. And we don't know if it was demonic in its entirety here in this moment, but we do have an instant later on in Acts 13 where another magician comes on and the Bible ascribes that magician as being part of the cult and influenced with satanic leanings. And so whatever he was doing, he was manipulating the masses. And and the only thing I can think of that would be analogous to this is when you have individuals from time to time that will come up and they'll say, listen, uh, we see the face of Jesus in the cleft of this rock. Or we have his, his face in this shroud and, and you can come and see and, and maybe we'll let you come see it for free but we'll ask for a donation. Uh, there was one uh, maybe a decade ago where they, they, they saw and, and you found this lady was cooking a grilled cheese sandwich. And out of that grilled cheese sandwich popped up the face of Jesus. And they called him a, a McCheeses or something like that. And she was selling the rights to come see it. And people were paying money and they were worshiping this grilled cheese sandwich. And you think how absurd that is. But people are easily manipulated uh, in, in that time and even in our time. This was more along the lines of what Simon was doing. But when he believed, in verse 12... Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he believed and was baptized. He continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he said he was amazed. Now notice verse 14 says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the spirit for he had not yet called on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But when Simon saw this in verse 18, he saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered money saying, give me this power, alas, so anyone on whom I lay my hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter just, as Simon just teased himself up, you don't feel, you don't hear the grace and the mercy and the compassion in Peter's response. Peter just says, may your silver perish with you. Like a very harsh and direct statement given back to him because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You therefore have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. I mean, just rips him. What do we do with that? Well, a couple of things, and one I'll just gloss over just for time's sake. One of the questions in this passage is why did the, why did the apostles have to go to validate the Spirit? 
Why didn't they receive it at their, at their regeneration? And, and why did they have to go to, to validate it? And I think the, the easiest answer to that, there are lots of reasons given, but I think one of the things we have to uniquely understand is this time in God's overarching redemptive history was a little bit different. And things were, were happening in a little bit different way at this moment. It's the only time in, in the scriptures that we see the delay of this. But I want to focus, as we close out this morning, I want to focus specifically on Simon. Because some of you are like, listen, uh, I'm not a magician. I'm not trying to bamboozle people. So how does this have any kind of application to me besides uh, Drew throwing a rock at Harry Potter books uh, every once in a while? I'm not throwing rocks at Harry Potter, so don't email me about that, all right? But here's the deal. We see a couple of things in, in Simon that I think are informative for us this morning. And if we're not careful, we might find a little bit of ourselves in Simon. Number one is this. In Simon, we see that not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real disciple. Just because you've prayed a prayer and just because you've entered into the baptistry waters, it doesn't guarantee the fact that you were actually a real disciple of Jesus. If that was the case, then our primary objective would just be able for you to say and recite some prayer and for us to get you in the water immediately. And we wouldn't care about any of the life change and the change that is necessary to demonstrate that you're really walking with God. Just because you prayed and just because you entered into the water, it doesn't mean that you know Jesus. In fact, for some of you this morning, it could be that it's given you a false sense of assurance. You might think I'm okay because I've done those things. The Bible teaches elsewhere that we are to examine the fruit in our life, to examine how do we know. We, we, well, we know that he wants us to know that we're saved. We saw that in the book of 1 John as we went through it. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. But Paul tells us elsewhere to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. That there's this onus upon us that each and every day that we practice and walk in the grace and the mercy of God, that we demonstrate that we have fruit in our life, the fruit of the spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness, and that we're walking with God in a, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And it doesn't mean we don't mess up. But the problem comes if we habitually are walking in patterns of sin on a regular basis, then we have to ask ourselves the question, we could be like Simon who said they believed and were baptized but really didn't know Christ. I think for some of you who have been going to church for a long time, it could be true of you that you love, in a weird way, you love the culture of Christianity more than you love the Christ of Christianity. Because he says, come and follow me and, and die to yourself and take upon my, my cross. And, and maybe you're here because you like the music or you like the ambiance or you're here to, to, to pick up a, a girlfriend or, or a boyfriend or, or whatever the motivation is. We can all find ourselves in the midst of that, that just because we prayed and were baptized doesn't guarantee that we actually know him. The question for you this morning is, do you know him? Do you genuinely know him? The second thing we see in Simon is we see a man who wants the spotlight to be on him and he's jealous when it ceases. If there's one thing I could say that I, want, I would ask for you pray for me as your pastor, it would be this. That if this light ever dimmed out on me, that I would be so rooted in my identity with Jesus that it would be okay. That my identity is not found in being a pastor or a preacher. 
that my identity is not found in being a father or being a husband or being a friend, that my identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And that if God ever, for whatever reason, called me on or removed it, that I wouldn't be jealous or envious or angry, that I would be in a place of of understanding and, and at peace. We serve oftentimes for all the wrong reasons, though many times we do serve for the right reasons. The last thing that we see in Simon's life is he tried to buy the Spirit of God with money as we see a man who wanted to purchase power with money. We see a man who wanted to purchase influence over people with the purse. I don't know where you are this morning or where you find yourself this morning, but my plea for you is just a simple one. Many of you, I think, we need to remember Philip this morning who went to the hard places, the Samarias. For some of you, that's your neighborhood. For some of you, that's your schools. And for you TCU students, it's your campus where you've got people that are far from God that that don't know Christ. And God has, has placed you there so that they would come to know him. Some of you, it's the person living to your right and the person living to your left. But maybe there's some of you that are here today and you've been coming to church for a long time. But maybe today would be a candid moment with you and the Lord that you would just simply say, I don't, I don't think I really know him. I don't think he, he really, he's really changed me. I'm going to invite our, our worship team back up on the stage to join me. I'm going to ask that we enter into a time and a place of, of prayer and seeking the Lord if you'd bow your head and close your eyes. And I just, wherever, where you are, whether you know the Lord or whether you don't, maybe everyone in this room, just, just in this moment, just, just quietly before the Lord, just ask the Lord this question. God, am I, am I, am I saved? Am I, am I really, truly born again as the Bible would, would describe it? Maybe you're here today and you, you've not been honest with yourself much less God. And you've been sort of walking a a path and playing a game in the midst of it all. But for those of you that are here and you do know Jesus, my challenge to you is really simple this morning. Who's the Samaritan in your life that you're going to go faithfully proclaim in word and deed to this very weak. And if no one comes to mind when I say that, just simply ask the Lord, Lord, show that person to me this week. Bring me to them. Let me be intentional in doing that very thing. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you that you have saved us through Christ and redeemed us through your spirit. We pray now that as your people here, we would respond and we would walk forth in obedience. We pray, God, that you would help change us. We pray for those tender moments with you where you encourage us and speak to us in those quiet places to spur us towards action, to spur us towards truth. So God, now we pray as your people and we respond, we pray that you would inhabit our praises would change us according to your word, that we would be like Philip, Lord.
we ask these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, Stand with me as we sing and respond in this, these last few moments that we have as the Lord leads. <laughs>